Thank you for listening to the Central Buna podcast. The following is a message from our January preaching series featuring guest speaker, Dr. Scott Moody, assistant professor of preaching at Luther Rice College and Seminary. For more information on Central Buna, go to cbcbuna.com. It is good to have Brother Rusty and Mallory and the family back in Southeast Texas. Amen. Can I get a witness on that? Uh, we, uh, I think we lamented when uh, the Lord led them out. The Lord in his kind providence, though, uh, did bring them back. And for that, I am grateful. And it is good to be here. And yes, we have been uh, uh, 18 years. I was pastor of First Baptist Silsby. And then the Lord redirected my call to the classroom. But I'm still... Uh, Lord and I are very involved in our church, Beaumont's First Baptist Church, and we're grateful for that. And I was telling him I'm now interim executive pastor there. Hear me quick. Not senior pastor, not lead pastor. That's Dr. Chris Moody. Is it confusing already? Too many Moody's. We have four Moody's running around the campus. If you don't count the pastor's family, more than that. Uh, But he is the senior pastor, lead pastor. Been there 16 years, doing a great job. But I'm the executive pastor. So we meant look at finances and then... Uh, some other matters, so it's just a joy to be there. Lori is involved in women's ministry. In fact, she's speaking. Ladies, we're going to have a great event at our church next month, and she's going to be speaking at that, and so we're excited about that. But Brother Rusty, was this about, uh, it was in the fall. You contacted me and asked me to come and to be here, and uh, I'm so grateful to do that. Lori's with me. And so what I want to do tonight is I want to bring a message the Lord has, has put on my heart, so if you want to take your copy of God's Word and be finding Matthew chapter 14, I'm going to be reading verses 22 down through verse 33. You know, local uh, TV station has a news segment called Crisis in the Classroom. Uh, I'm not here to endorse that or say anything about that otherwise other than just that title. And I want to take that title, I'm going to alter it just a bit because tonight I want to bring a message entitled The Crisis Classroom. The Crisis Classroom, and we're going to see it right here before our eyes in Matthew chapter 14 as we're going to be looking at verses 22 down through verse 33. A uh, New York Times bestseller book by David James Brown, or Daniel James Brown rather, entitled The Boys in the Boat has just hit the big screen. In fact, some of you may have seen it. It's also going to be coming out on Amazon Prime and, and other venues here uh, in the very near future. I'm reading the book. I've already, I read the book about five or six years ago, not knowing that it was about to come out in a movie. I picked up the book, oh, I guess about a month before Christmas, and I'm reading through the book right now, and, and I love it because it chronicles nine American young men who were part of the U- University of Washington rowing team back in the early 1930s, primarily focusing on a main character by the name of Joe Rance. Joe Rance lived a hard, scrabble life. He, his mother died when he was a, a very young boy, and then his dad remarried, and his stepmother hated him. His stepmother convinced Joe's dad to just literally kick him out of the house. In fact, they, they did it worse than that. Uh, they sent him away for just like a weekend getaway, whatever, and, they, and while he was gone, they left, and he came home to an empty house. And that's the kind of hard, harsh existence that he lived. But he became very independent. He became very driven. And ultimately, we understand some of that was some anger and the hurt and the resentment that was going on in his life. But he channeled that in a good direction and became part of this much-heralded 
nine Americans who were part of the University of Washington growing team who not only won national championships as freshmen and then as sophomores, but ultimately they became the United States Olympic team, rowing team in Nazi Germany, who the Olympics were held in Nazi Germany in Berlin in 1936, and they represented America. And they represented the United States. And I'm not gonna tell you how it ends, I don't wanna ruin it for you. Buy the book, watch the movie if, if you can. But, it, but it's a great, 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 great piece. And I say that because I love the title, Boys in the Boat. But y'all listen, tonight we're going to be reading about the original Boys in the Boat, the first round draft picks, as I call them, where Jesus calls these men and he puts them in a boat. And we're going to read about that tonight as I want to talk about the crisis classroom. Because you see, I want you to understand and I need to understand that risks are an inherent part of life. We cannot evade them. We cannot escape them. In fact, listen to uh, John Piper. John Piper says this, risk is woven into the fabric of our finite lives. We cannot avoid it even if we tried. Our ignorance and uncertainty about tomorrow is our native air. All of our plans for tomorrow can be shattered by a thousand unknowns, whether we stay at home under the covers or we get in the car and ride the freeways. The tragic hypocrisy is that we take everyday risk for ourselves, but we are paralyzed from taking them for others on the Calvary road of love. Risk, we cannot escape it. And we're gonna see here that in our story tonight that we're gonna to read in just a second, Jesus intentionally puts his men at risk. He intentionally leads them into a crisis so that crisis might become a classroom. And so while they're in the classroom, they might graduate and learn deeper and more wonderful lessons about himself that I believe you and I need to learn tonight. Let's stand as we honor the word of God. You follow along as I begin reading in Matthew chapter 14, uh, beginning in verse 22. My version says, immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side. Did you read that carefully? To the other side. While he sent the crowds away. And after Jesus had sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered or literally tormented by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, take courage, have heart, be courageous. Now my version says, it is I. Can I tell you what the Greek literally says in the New Testament? He literally says, take courage, I am. Oh, how much stronger is that? We know what that connects to in the Old Testament. Take courage, I am. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. I'm so glad Peter was in the boat that night. Command me to come to you in the water. And he said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, I think if you have a King James that says, but seeing the wind boisterous, but seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said to him, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind stopped. 
We're going we're gonna to compare this account of Jesus and his men on the Sea of Galilee and the storm with the previous one in Matthew chapter 8. And there are some very noticeable and I believe very significant differences, and that's one right there. When they got into the boat, the wind, I like this, stopped. It ceased. Verse 33, and those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you are certainly God's son. May God add his very rich blessing on the reading of his word. You may be seated. What I want to do tonight is I want to just bring out some, some, just some significant lessons from this to help us as we navigate life. And, and rather, maybe rather than just simply doing our best to try to navigate away from crisis, sometimes crises have a way of finding us, right? Risks have a way of finding us. And we need to understand that what God brings us to, he'll bring us through, that we can trust him. And so what I want to do tonight, I want us to realize that Jesus Christ, as he is to the men in this story, he is to us now in the story of our lives. You see, we can trust him. Spurgeon, and I'm going to, I'm going to cite Spurgeon later on in this sermon. I love Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher of Metropolitan Tabernacle in, in London, England, back in the 19th century, the greatest, I believe, the greatest pastor of his day. Uh, he, he was a wonderful preacher. I, wouldn't, I, wouldn't call, I would not call him in the classical sense an expositor, but he was a great uh, text preacher uh, in that he would bring out wonderful single truths from the Word of God. But Spurgeon said this in his devotional morning and evening. He says, Are we nearly engulfed by the boisterous waters of affliction? Let us then lift up our souls unto our Savior that we may rest assured that he will not suffer us to perish. When we can do nothing, Jesus can do all things. Jesus can do all things. Let us enlist, therefore, his powerful aid upon our side, and all will be well. So what I want to do is I want us just to go through this text of Scripture just very carefully, and I want to bring out some wonderful truths for us. Notice truth number one, when the crisis becomes a classroom for you and me. Notice number one, Jesus stands over the crisis. He stands over the crisis. Now, I want to develop this. So look now back in our text, verse 22. It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go. He compelled them to get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the crowds away. I want you to notice there's one of these actions here in the gospel that when Jesus begins to separate his, his men from the crowds, he's setting up shop for the, he's setting up the classroom. My dad used to have a saying, and I used to, I used to hate to hear it. He would say, son, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Well, what he's going to do, the students weren't quite ready here when, he's, when he puts them in the boat and sends them away. But you let the storm hit, you let the waves rise up, you let the water start coming in the boat, they're going to get ready. And they're going to be ready for him to teach them something wonderful about himself. See, that's what a crisis does. That's what risks do when, when, the, when we find ourselves in a difficult place, when we find ourselves in a hard place, when we find ourselves in a difficult moment. That's what they do. They make us teachable. They open up our hearts to say, I need to learn something here. Someone has well said that trials, tears, and transitions create teachable moments. Trials, tears, transitions create teachable moments. They open our hearts up to maybe what God would have us to hear. And so we see Jesus in a very strategic, deliberate plan of his. He separates his men from the crowds, and he's now puts them in a boat, and he sends them off. Now, you remember I told you I was going to connect this to Matthew chapter 8? In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus is in the boat with them. See that, see that? This is lower level Christianity. He is with them, 
And while he is there asleep in the, in the stern, the back part of the ship, while he is there, the storm hits. Now remember, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, these guys are experienced fishermen, but the other guys, like Matthew, who penned this gospel, he's a tax collector. What does he know about it? And some of the others. But the storm was so bad in Matthew 8 and here in Matthew 14, it is so bad, they're getting scared. But in Matthew 8, Jesus is in the boat with them. Here, he's not. You see, this is now graduate level Christianity. You see how he's taking them up another notch? Earlier, he was with them. They could turn and see him. They could talk to him. They could wake him up and say, do you not care that we're perishing? And he stands up. But in this story, he's not in the boat. He's not with them. I believe he's getting them ready for what's going to happen when he dies on the cross, comes out of the tomb on the third day. He's with them those 50 days. And then he ascends to be with the Father. And thus he leaves them on the earth. That's the way you and I have it with him right now. I don't see him with my, with my tangible eye. I don't see him with my physical eye. But by faith, I believe he's here. He's near. He's within me. He's within you. And we're going to see him in, in glory one day. I believe that's going to happen. But meanwhile, right now, I have to go through life. And so just like Jesus compelled the disciples, he compels you. He thrust us forward to another day. He thrust us forward into another week. He thrust us forward into another year to teach us something about himself. So notice now, he puts them in the boat, tells them to go to the other side, not to the middle and perish, not to the middle and sink, to go to the other side while he sent the crowds away. Now notice what Jesus does in verse 23. It says, after he sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Now, I find that interesting. Jesus disperses the crowds. The men are already, his boys in the boat are already crossing the sea. And what does he do? He goes up to the mountain. I, I have to believe that where he positioned himself, he was able to look right down and see those disciples on the boat on the, on the Sea of Galilee. And he sees them struggling because we're going to see in a moment what they're doing when the storm hits. But what is Jesus doing? The text clearly tells us, remember now we're talking about Christ standing over the crisis, that he positioned himself in the mountain to pray. And when he was there, when it was evening, he was there alone praying. Now can you hear me say this? Let me pause just for a moment to get everybody's attention. What Jesus is doing on the mountain, praying, is far more significant than what the disciples are doing in that boat rowing. What Jesus is doing on the mountain praying is far more significant than what those disciples are doing on the boat rowing. We need to hear that. We need to believe that. You see, and here's the good news. Let me connect the dots. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, the Bible says in Romans chapter 8 that Jesus is interceding even now. The Bible says he ever lives to make intercession. That means he's praying for you. You're on his heart. Your need, he's aware of it. He doesn't have to look down and see. He knows. He's omniscient. He has, he has 24-7, 365 eternal knowledge of who you are, what you're going through, what you're facing, what's ahead of you. And he's praying. He is customizing his intercession for your specific needs. You know, we tell people we'll pray for them, and sometimes we forget, don't we? He never forgets. He may be off of my mind, but I'm never off of his. He may, he may be not in, aware in my heart, but I'm never unaware 
in his heart. So he's praying. And so this is far more significant. And notice his prayers. Think about this now. He's not joined them in yet as, we're gonna, as we've seen here as we read the story. But notice his prayer precedes everything else he's going to do. His prayers precede everything else he's going to do. That means then that what God does in your life, and just, now just pause and just take inventory on some wonderful things that God has done in your life since you've been on the planet, since you've been saved and you're following him. God has shown up, he's shown off, he's done some great things, and I want you to know every single thing that God has ever done, it was preceded by his prayer for you. What God wants to do in this church. This church has a great heritage, it has a great legacy, but I think the future of this church is even greater. And so before God does it in you and through you to impact the greater Southeast Texas area and the world, what God does, he's praying. Specific intercession. And when we intercede for others, when we pray for others, it's a great thing to pray for ourselves. We're going to see in a moment here, Peter's going to pray for himself. And we need to do that. But when we intercede for others, we're not praying for self. When we intercede for others, we join Jesus at the highest level of praying. Where we're thinking of others, praying for, praying for others, and taking them before the throne. Now let's, let's resume the story. While Jesus is praying, look at verse 24. But the boat was already a long way from the land, battered. It's interesting that word, my version says battered. It's interesting there that the word literally means tormented. In fact, it was a term taken in two specific applications. First off, it was part of the penal system of the day that literally prisoners would be taken, if, especially these incorrigible prisoners, they would be in shackles and chains, and literally sometimes they would heat up iron till it's just red hot glowing, and they would touch the bottoms of the prisoners' feet, trying to make them confess to a crime, or just simply punishing them for a crime they've already committed. I mean, they're not, they're not just in prison, they're being tortured in prison by, by allowance of the law. That, that's the word that we have right here. Second application, this word also came to describe those who were going to be tormented in hell, who, who willfully reject God, God's love, God's offer of salvation, who are going to join the devil and his angels in hell, and they're going to be tormented for all eternity. Same word. That's why it makes me wonder. Now, I don't have insight uh, text to prove this, but I just wonder in my, in my, as I look at this text and as I think about it, that's why I wonder if there's not some kind of spiritual dimension to this attack. I mean, to this storm here, it's a, it's a spiritual attack on the men. It's a spiritual attack on, on Jesus, you know, and his teaching and training of these men. In other words, if the devil could have these guys killed on the Sea of Galilee, you know, he's taking care of these first-round draft picks. Now Jesus has got to pick another team. I remember when the University of Marshall football team in the early 1970s was flying home from a game with East Carolina, and on the way home, struck by lightning in the middle of the air, and the whole plane crashed, and the whole football team in one fell swoop, and most of the coaches were killed. A team was taken out. I wonder, was there some spiritual, I can't prove it, but I just wonder, was there some spiritual dimension here when it says they, they were tormented or battered by the storm? Otherwise, notice it says, for the wind was contrary, blowing against them. Think about this. The wind is frothing up the water. The water, the waves are kicked up. Lightning, if you will, flashing in the sky. Thunder claps going on. Water filling the boat. They're belling the boat. They're rowing the boat, trying to, to, to get to the other side. And so notice, that's why I say, Jesus, what's, Jesus stands over the crisis because look now in verse 25. 
And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus came to them walking on the sea. I love that. The Romans divided the night watch into four watches with some slight overlap. First watch, six to nine. Second watch, nine to twelve. Third watch, twelve to three. Fourth watch, three to six. So we know by Matthew giving us his time stamp that this is sometime three, four, five, maybe even close to six o'clock in the morning. So can you imagine? You know it was many hours earlier that Jesus had put them in the boat to cross the sea, and they'd been toiling all night long, just trying to survive and stay afloat. And right when they were thinking, alas, this is not going to work, we're going down, all of a sudden Jesus comes to them. Now I want you to notice, what is he doing? The text clearly tells us that he is walking on the sea. The preposition they're using in the original language means to, means to press upon. So if I take my hands and I push down on this pulpit, I'm pressing upon it. So my actual palm is pushing, resting on the top of this pulpit. That's what the, the very preposition that Matthew uses here and is also used by John's gospel. Notice it describes Jesus' actual feet resting on the top of the water. The reason I say that, because there was way back in the heyday, way back in the early parts of the 20th century, there was some liberal scholarship that would come to this passage of Scripture, and they would say, well, there's no way anybody could walk on the water. So in other words, this must have been ankle-deep water that Jesus was walking in, rather than, you know, deep water. Uh, and, you know, they tried to they try explain it away. So what they thought when well, he was walking on the water, simply he was walking in the water. And the water just came up to his ankles, or maybe halfway between his ankles and his knees. So he was actually in the water. Not so fast. If you look at the original language of the New Testament, it doesn't say in, it says on, upon, his feet resting on the water. So the water became concrete under his feet. And that's my point. Listen to me. What was threatening to overwhelm the disciples, what was threatening to overcome them, what was threatening to, to rise above their heads was already under Jesus' feet. I like so well... In fact, I, 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 as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about as he's, Jesus is approaching the disciples, I was thinking of the psalmist. Listen to the psalmist as he speaks of how the Lord would leave heaven to tread upon the dark places of the earth. Can you imagine now four o'clock in the morning, storm? I imagine that Sea of Galilee was a pretty dark place. And so the psalmist speaks of Jesus, speaks of, of, of the servant of, of, of Yahweh, which we know to be the Messiah, Jesus Christ, this is what it says. It said, the Lord bowed the heavens. I like this. The heavens are subject to him. The Lord bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and he flew and he sped upon the wings of the wind. I like this. Thick darkness under his feet and he sped upon the wings of the wind as he was coming to the aid and to the assistance of these disciples. That's my God. And see, he loves you the same way. And see, he wants to work in your life the same way. And he wants to work in my life the same way. That's why we must understand Jesus stands over the crisis. Lesson number two. Life lesson number two. Christ, Jesus regulates the timing and extent of the crisis. That's why we need to learn this in the classroom. He stands over the crisis. And notice he regulates the timing and extent of the crisis. Look in verse 26. It says, and when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, 
They were terrified. That's an understatement, right? Walking on the water. They were terrified and they said, it's a ghost. Interesting that word ghost is the Greek word that we transliterate right into English from Greek right into English, phantasm. It means apparition, specter, ghost, something ethereal, something unworldly. You ever, you ever thought you saw a ghost? How was that working for you? I love reading uh, Charles uh, Dickens, and I read it every year, and I read it this year. His wonderful work, uh, a Christmas, The Christmas Carol, and it's about, you know, it's about Ebenezer Scrooge, one who hated Christmas. You probably saw maybe some rendition of it over the holidays. I love to read the original book and, and go through it, and, 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 and uh, I did it this year. And you know when, when and you know the story, Ebenezer hated anything to do with Christmas. It was a bah humbug, and, and the book opens with his nephew coming to wish him a Merry Christmas. He throws him out of his, out of his place of business. And then uh, later that night, it was seven Christmas Eves prior to that night, Jacob Marley, his partner in business, died. Now seven Christmas Eves later, at midnight, Jacob Marley uh, comes and, and visits him and tells him he's going to be visited by three ghosts the ghost of Christmas past, Christmas present, and Christmas future. But it was all for the purpose, and this, that's why I t tell you this story, it's all for the purpose to let Ebenezer know that, that somebody wants to reclaim him. Somebody wants to transform him. It's what I call a good haunting. And Dickens was making special effort to point to us that there's a good haunting in Ebenezer's life, and that haunting of those ghosts, not three, by the way, past, present, and future Christmas, but it was four because Jacob Marley came. So a good haunting that these ghosts come to him because they wanted to reclaim him for heaven, and indeed they did. I tell you what, I don't like ghosts. I don't like anything to do with them. I, Lori and I, where we lived, and we still, you know, live in Silsby, and some of you here may have heard about it, but there's the Bragg Ghost Light Road. Anybody know what I'm talking about? So we'd heard about this and heard about this, and so one night I told Laura, I said, we're going to get to the bottom of this. So my two daughters were still at home, and so we went by and got a sweet uh, lady at our church. She, she's gone home to be with the Lord now, but she knew all about it. And I said, uh, Helen, come and, come and go with us. So we loaded up and, and uh, drove to, we went, not, not the way out of Coons, we went to Saratoga and came up that way to get on the Bragg Ghost Light Road. And so I'll never forget, we're, we're driving on the road there, and we're about halfway across it, as it turned out. And so we decided here was a good place. It was a good wide place on the road. And we stopped and we all got out of the car and just sort of walked around, you know. Helen was telling us about it. All of a sudden I look up and their uh, headlights headed our way. And I said, y'all, ladies, we need to get in the car. I said, here, here comes a, some vehicle and we want to, you know, make, we want to get back in the car where it's safe. And so we did. And so I'm driving as we're in the car. I'm driving that way. And all of a sudden, those headlights, they, did, they just vanish. All those lights, they just vanish. And I sort of judged where it was. And so we just kept driving. And when I got down there, there was no driveway. There was no road, crossroad, nothing. It was just a big, two big ditches on the side of the road and woods. That was it. Nowhere. And I'm thinking, where do those lights go? At that moment, I accelerated the car. And we came on home to Sealsby. So I can say that unless someone proves otherwise, we saw the Bragg ghost lights, and it's quite a phenomenon. So I could, I could wonder how, I sort of know how these men felt, because Jesus walks up. First off, he's doing something unworldly, right, walking on water. Secondly, he cries out to them. He speaks to them. And notice, they say, it's a ghost. 
They cried out in fear, but immediately Je uh, Jesus speaks to them and he says in verse 27, he says, take courage. I love that. That word is not used too many times in the gospel. It's always used by Jesus and it's always to the fearful, calling them to faith, calling them to the courage, the courageous action of having faith instead of fear. And so he says, take courage. And then I love this. He does not say, it is I. He said, ego me. He goes, I am. Now you think about that. You think about the connotations that has for the Old Testament and the connections that has for the Old Testament. Think about how so many times when Moses was at the burning bush and he says, Lord, you want me to do what? And he says, I want you to go back to Egypt and you're going you're to bring my people out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of oppression. You're going to bring them here to the land that I've chosen. And he goes, oh, by the way, who, do I, who am I to tell them sent me? And he goes, I am that I am. Connecting himself, saying, I am Yahweh, I am Jehovah, I am the pre-existent one, I am the eternal one. I am one who is all in all. I am the one who sent you. And so then you come to the Gospels and Jesus repeatedly takes special effort to identify himself as the I am. Read John's Gospel, seven I am statements. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the living water. Identifying himself with, with Yahweh, with his Father. And so here, as these men are on the, on the Sea of Galilee, the storm is hit. The, the waves are, 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 are agitated. The water's coming in the boat. The wind is blowing. And he goes, listen, it is I, I, I am. I think of another time when, when God had his children before a body of water in the book of Exodus when God led his people out of, out of Egypt. As the story continued, Moses did go back. He did lead them. And the plagues did hit Egypt. And Pharaoh finally did let his, Moses and the Israel, Israeli, Israelites go. But then later he changed his mind. Remember, he began to chase them and pursue them. and got him right up against the devil in the deep blue sea, right? Right up against the Red Sea. All of a sudden, they're thinking, what's going to happen now? The enemy's behind us. The Red Sea's in front of us. Where are we going to go? And you know the story, God and his wonderful, miraculous power, Jehovah God, not the great I am. Remember, he blew and opened up that water and allowed Israel to pass on the dry land. And Israel no sooner got across. He allowed Pharaoh's army to pursue. When they got down to the very belly of that Red Sea crossing, all of a sudden, he let the water come back and destroyed Pharaoh's army in one movement. When they got on the other side and it was all done, they composed a song. I like that. Moses and Israel composed a song. Listen to it. Exodus chapter 15. Look if you will in verse 8. Or no, you just, let me read it. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters were piled up. The flowing waters stood up like a heap. The deeps were con congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy, Pharaoh, said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be gratified against them. I will draw out my sword and my hand will destroy them. You blew with your wind and the sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? You stretched out your hand and the earth swallowed them. In your loving kindness, you have led the people whom you have redeemed. In your strength, you have guided them to your holy habitation. And then at the very end of the song, the very last words of the song, they say, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. What is our principle in our story? The Lord regulates the timing and extent of the storm. Why? Because he reigns. And I want you to realize that as you face whatever crisis God allows to come your way. 
Life lesson number three. Back in the text, notice this. This is wonderful. Christ, or Jesus, joins us in the crisis. He joins us in the crisis. So here he is. He's talking to the men. Then notice Peter. It gets even more specific, even more personal. It's not just the men. It's now a man. Verse 28, Peter said to him, Lord, if it is you, literally it says, Lord, it is you, command me now to come to you on the water. And the Lord said, come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. Now, before we sort of take it to Peter and say, yeah, he took his eyes off the Lord, he began to sink. I may I remind you, he's the only one to get out of the boat. So I do give him credit. And so he gets out of the boat, and notice it says, like Jesus, he walks on the water, and he came toward Jesus. Now, now I want you to get this in your mind's eye. Remember, a storm is hit. They're, they're in the full fury of this storm. So that means in the waves are up and down. It, so when that means that Peter got out on the water and walked on it, he's not walking on a flat surface like I am now. Those waves had crests. They had ridges. So he walks up, steps over the ridge, walks down back in the trough, now he goes back up on the next one, goes down as he's making his way to Jesus. Everything's great. Hey, how cool is that, right? You get out of the boat, you go into Jesus, showing these other guys here, listen, I'm walking on water. How cool. But like Peter and so many other stories about himself, he goes from, you know, he goes from hero to zero, right? So notice what happens. Verse 30, he says, but seeing the wind, he became frightened. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said, you have little faith, why did you doubt? Now, today is January 21st. Seven days ago, remember I referenced Charles Haddon Spurgeon and his wonderful devotion, morning and evening. Uh, Laura and I still read that. I love to read it in, in the original format because I love the charm of the old English I read it today. I mean, I read it every day. Seven days ago on January the 14th, on the evening of morning and evening, Spurgeon writes about this very story right here with Peter. It's so good, I have to reference it here tonight. In fact, brother, this will preach. I mean, it's a great outline. So he, he, he describes, he narrates Peter's experience as he gets out of the boat to come to Jesus, and then you know what happened. He has three points. Number one, sinking times are praying times. I, that's great, isn't it? Sinking times are praying times. In other words, Peter's beginning to sink. He prays. Now, I just think that's a great thing. And I believe any time and every time we come to a crisis, any time and every time we come to a hard, difficult moment of life, it is okay to pray. God expects us to pray. God commands us to pray. Just to cry out to him, Lord Jesus. In fact, the Bible does say in Romans chapter 8 that even those times when we're so burdened in the crisis and we can't even utter a word, that's when the Holy Spirit prays for us. And certainly our Lord is praying for us. I like that. But here, here's the principle though. Don't let crisis be the only times you pray. Pray, pray in the good times. Pray in the easy times. Just thank the Lord. If you, if you have no pressing needs, praise the Lord for that and just praise Him. Spurgeon's second point. Sinking times are praying times. Number two, short prayers are long enough. Short prayers are long enough. Can you see what Peter did not do? Here he's sinking. By the way, isn't it interesting? It's going to be that we're in chapter 14. It's going to be in chapter 16. The Lord's going to say, Peter, your name means a rock. And Peter goes, tell me something I don't know, Lord. I remember that back on the Sea of Galilee. 
Yeah, I sank like a rock. So Spurgeon says, short, time, short prayers are long enough. So when Peter's starting to sink because he takes his eyes off the Lord, right? And he begins to look at the wind and the... I mean, not the wind, but he sees the effects of the wind, the water, the waves. He hears the, the thunder, the flash of the lightning, takes his eyes off the Lord. He begins to go. Now, what Peter did not do is, you know, put his hand and say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom. Did he do that? No. Did he, you know, Lord, thank you in your kind, benevolent kindness. You allowed our lives to see another day. Lord, just thank you. We just pray now for the missionary. No, he didn't do that. Three, three words, three words. Spurgeon's right. Short prayers are long enough. He said, Lord, save me. And I like that. And so what does the Lord do? When he cries out and says, Lord, save me. Um, I like this. Immediately, Jesus didn't linger. He couldn't. Peter's going down like a rock. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand and took hold of him and said, but notice what he says, with the reach comes a rebuke. You have little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, I like that, Jesus takes care of it. Third point, Spurgeon said, our extremities are the Lord's opportunities. Our extremities are the Lord's opportunities. You see, Jesus and Peter climbed in the boat. And here's something, if, if we don't stop and, and just pause here just for a second, we could miss it. Because notice what it says. It says, when they got into the boat, Verse 32, it says the wind stopped. Difference between Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, Jesus commands the wind. He gets it, he, he, well, they wake him up. They say, don't you care that we're perishing? He, he looks and he, see, he rebukes the wind. He says, be muzzled. And the wind is muzzled. It has to stop. Here, he just gets in the boat. You know what the wind says? Well, okay, you know it's coming. He's going to tell us to stop. Let's just go ahead and stop right now. See, the Bible says in Psalm 148, verse 8, stormy wind fulfills his command. Stormy wind fulfills his command. In other words, the wind knows who he is. We, we may not know, but the wind does, the waves do, the rain does. Job says that God sends the rain from his treasuries. We're about to get some out of the, we're going to get some withdrawals here starting tomorrow night, Tuesday and Wednesday. Because God commands it. When the disciples were presented with the undeniable truth that our Lord rules over the winds and the water, the crisis, if you will, notice their inevitable response. Look at verse 33. And those who were in the boat worshiped him saying, you are certainly, you are certainly God's son. See, you and I need to be aware of that tonight. Because it could be on the front end. We don't know what 2024, I mean, good night, that's an election year, so you know what that bodes for, some, for, for our country and for our nation. I don't know, but God does. But what I do know is, is I just need to make sure that I, that I am responding to him rightly, that I'm responding to his word, that I'm coming to him, and I'm going to let these, these moments of life that sometimes can be difficult, like a crisis or a hardship, difficulty, let them be a classroom for me to teach wonderful deep new truths about the Lord or maybe remind us of old truths about the Lord that the Lord is in control. You see, he allows these things to come my way so that I might respond rightly and properly to him. John F. Kennedy made famous uh, when he was president in one of his speeches, he said that the Chinese word for crisis is a combination of two characters. One meaning danger 
and the other character meaning opportunity. Danger and opportunity together formed the Chinese word for crisis. Now, since that was in the early 1960s. Since then, some linguists have come along and said, well, the second character may not necessarily mean opportunity, but it does mean change point. Well, I could take it either way. Danger plus opportunity, put them together, that's in the crisis. So God allows us to face danger. God allows us to face the stormy seas, but in that there's an opportunity for him to teach us. Or it could be a change, change point. In the danger, in those moments, in the storms, God brings us to a place where we're willing to change. Remember a while ago, tears, trials, transitions make us teachable. And that's what you and I need to realize. Because you see, the crisis experiences of our lives are the classroom for God's teaching moments. Trials, tears, transitions become those teachable moments for us to learn rich, deep truths about our Lord. The poet knew it. Listen to the poet. I walked a mile with pleasure. She chatted all the way. But she left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow. Not a word, said she. Oh, but the things I learned from sorrow when sorrow walked with me. You see, you and I need to realize that the crisis we can't, we don't regulate them. We don't control them. We, we can't stop them. But God does regulate them. God does mediate them. God does direct them. And God does use them. And they can be a classroom where you learn. And that's why I need the truths like this message tonight. And I need stories in my Bible like the one we read tonight because that helps me. That builds my faith. That gives me courage. That gives me hope. Because I know that no matter how severe the crisis may be, God's in control. And what threatens to overwhelm me is under his feet. Arthur Jim Shaddix tells of a time when he was preparing to fly back home after speaking at a conference. And so he, along with other passengers, as they were out ready to board their plane, uh, he was one of the last passengers really to board the plane for that particular flight. And as he was about ready to, he showed his boarding pass, as he was about ready to make his way down the, the jetway to the plane, the ticket agent said, told him, said, oh, by the way, I want you to know that the pilot for this particular flight that you're on is making his last flight. It's his last journey. He's flown for us for decades, and he's, he's retiring after the flight tonight. So just to let you know that when you land to honor him and his uh, dependable, faithful service through the years, and to honor him in his retirement, uh, there's going to be an entourage of emergency vehicles along the runway with lights flashing, sirens, just so you'll know they're going to be there. And so just, just be aware of it. Well, apparently, Jim must have been the only person that the ticket agent told that to. So when the plane landed and was taxiing up to the gate, sure enough, just like she said, I mean, there were these emergency vehicles. They were in formation, lights flashing, sirens going on. The, the passengers that did not know what was going on, like Jim did, you know, because once you land, you can turn your phone on. They're, call, you know, they're calling loved ones, like, what's going on? Have you seen the news? Check it. They were buzzing, the, the, the flight attendant. Hey, what's going on? Now, finally, the pilot had to come on and say, folks, let me assure you, everything is okay. This is my last flight. I'm retiring after this flight tonight. Can I inform you that the ticket agent, the truth of God's word, 
lets us know that we're on a journey. And the journey's, I believe, coming close. We're nearing the end, but it's going to be okay. And the emergency lights may flash and the sirens may sound, but everything, as, as I believe, everything is not falling apart as I believe everything is falling into place for Jesus to come back. And in the meantime, and when we're rowing on the boat on the high seas and the winds are coming, the waves are being agitated, the boat is rocking, the boat is filling up, I want you to know, despite all those appearances, my ticket agent has told me everything's going to be okay because Jesus is in control. And so what threatens to overwhelm you is already under his feet. He regulates the timing and extent of the crisis. He joins us in the crisis. And so I pray tonight that you would trust him. I pray tonight that you would follow him. I pray tonight that you would just say, Lord, I'm giving to you. I don't understand it, but Lord, I know you and I know you do. And I'm just going to lay this at your feet where it belongs in the first place. Would you bow your heads with me? Heads and hearts are bowed right now, and I pray that as we come to this time of, of invitation, I'm just going to ask just simply that, uh, and your pastors are going to be up front here, and Caleb and the band, they're going to be playing here in just a little bit, but this is going to be your opportunity to respond to this message. And for some of you, just maybe just staying right exactly where you are, uh, because God is dealing with you, and maybe you're just, you're just dealing with him right now. But for others of you, you might need to come forward into these steps to make these steps an altar, maybe come to... Uh, to Brother Rusty or, or anybody else up here, maybe just have a word of prayer with him, whatever it might be. For some of you, might be accepting Christ as Lord and Savior. I did it on a Sunday night back when I was a boy. Sunday night was a perfect time for me to do it, being an introvert. And I gave my heart to Christ. Maybe others of you need to respond. But I want you to take this time. Some of you, someone as well said there are three kinds of people in any service, those that are going into a crisis, those that are in a crisis, and those that are coming out. Which are you? If you're not in one right now, you, you could be heading into one. If you're coming out of one, praise the Lord and thank Him for His faithfulness. But I know that God wants to teach you something about Himself. Would you learn it? Lord Jesus, speak to us now. The Lord, I pray as we've heard from you. Lord, as we respond, I pray, Father, we'll respond in obedience and faith. And Lord, if we're in the crisis now and we're like Peter, all we, can, all we can utter are three words. Lord, save me. Then Lord, that's enough. And I pray that you would do it. So Lord, I pray that we respond exactly how you're leading us here tonight to do it. Thank you, Lord, that we can call out to you. Thank you, Lord, that you're a sufficient Savior. Thank you, Lord, that you're a compassionate Christ. You're a loving Lord. You're a merciful Master. And Lord, I pray now that we might respond in Jesus' name. Would you stand, please? Our band is going to lead us. God is responding. I mean, God is speaking to you rather. You're responding. And I pray that you would do it right now while we wait. Thank you for listening. May God bless you as you continue to connect, grow, and serve.